So last week I, I, I did Jesus's team. We looked at the first six disciples of Jesus and how they were interconnected to each other, to the broader ministry of Jesus. And if you remember, I, I said that uh, I was, came, came back from Scotland a few weeks ago and I went and visited my family kind of land in Widgerington, England. Uh, and all that's left of our family heritage there physically is a field with 12 trees on it. And they have uh, very providentially named them the 12 Apostles. Okay, so these, these trees in Widrington, England bear the name of apostles. But we saw last week, these apostles were anything but infam- famous men. They were, they were ordinary guys with real issues and real homes and real wives and real kids and real jobs. And they met the real Jesus. And so even though uh, the apostles have a global popularity, historical popularity, they were ordinary guys. This week, we're going to see a group of people that have no trees named after them, no cathedrals, no universities, no books. You can't find Epaphras Cathedral. You can't find Tychicus University. You can't find it. And so what we're going to see is in this list of men and women is not famous people in the world's eyes, but ordinary men and women that God used for extraordinary purposes. And as I was Preparing for this, I, 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 one of the commentators I read, which I would totally recommend to you to get, is, is Kent Hughes. His commentaries are easy to read. You can get them on every book of the Bible. He's a great preacher's commentary. He's just great. He's, he's, he's lighthearted, but his expositions are incredible. Exegesis is great. But he told a story on this passage, and he, he said that he went to an auction one day, and there was a, a violin out of this uh, estate being auctioned off. And it was obviously old, and it was obviously in bad shape. The strings weren't in good shape. The, the bridge was out of place. And so he started the bidding at $50. And he said, who'll give me $50 for this antique violin? And no, 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 all the way down to $3. And at $3, a man in the audience said, can I have a few minutes with that, uh, that violin of antiquity? And this man got up and he tuned it and put the bridge back in place and got the bow and and he played a beautiful Mozart piece. And this, the, the audience was stunned. And he sat down, handed the violin back to the auctioneer and the auctioneer said, let's start the bidding at $1,000. And he got to 3000 and the violin sold. So what made the difference between this $3 instrument to a $3,000 instrument? And Kenton Hughes said, well, it was touched by a master. It was touched by a master violinist. And what I want us to see this morning is these are $3 people who have been touched by a priceless master and their value is is not describable. We have a church in Lexington, Kentucky in 2019 because these $3 people were faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ spreading all over the world. That should get all of you $3 people real hope. It gives this $3 guy real hope that when you're touched by the master, there's priceless value to us. So with that in mind, let's look at these uh, very normal, ordinary people that God used in extraordinary ways. So I've got, for you note takers, we've got, we're going to see power players. We're going to see power enhancers. And I'll tell you why I use that word in a second. And then we're going to see power takers. And that's going to be a warning. uh, The power taker is. So let's start with four power players. The first one is Tychicus, verse seven and eight. So I would invite you to keep the scriptures open so you can see this for yourself. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. 
I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that, my, and that he may encourage your hearts. The context here is Paul is in prison in Rome. He's been jailed there because he's a, an apostle, a preacher of the way and the Roman government. This is under Trajan, getting ready to be Nero. Uh, wanted to eradicate the world of this hostile religion that said there is no king but Jesus and they wanted Caesar to be king. So Paul is in jail because he's the leading advocate of this way. And as Paul's tradition was when he was in jail was he wrote letters. But he didn't write them himself. He dictated them to someone else. And most scholars think that Tychicus was his uh, one taking the dictation. So Tychicus is writing. And as Tychicus is writing this that Paul is saying, Paul describes Tychicus as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. This was a significant person in Paul's life. And just, I long to have those descriptors about myself. Wouldn't it be awesome for someone to say that Mac is a beloved brother? It draws into the family dynamic that Mac is a brother to me. We live in the same family. God is our father. Tychicus was a beloved brother. He was that close to Paul says that he was a faithful minister. He carried out his calling with faithfulness. He was serious about his work. Paul had given him charges, as we'll see, to deliver these letters, and he was faithful to do that ministry to the Colossians. And then he says, a fellow servant in the Lord. This is Paul's favorite word to use about himself, a doulos. Here it's bondulos, a fellow servant, a slave They viewed themselves under the mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is not an oppressive master, but their their lives, their minds, their bodies, their resources were under his servanthood. I was thinking about this years ago. I I walked into the Tychicus, particularly to me as a a man of note, but I was was reminded of this booklet in one of my relatives who's a high-ranking military official, an army an army general actually, and he had in his office a little pamphlet called A Message to Garcia. And A Message to Garcia is a, is a, is a little booklet that's actually gotten a lot of controversy over the last few years in the military brass, but it was passed around as an, uh, an advocacy for how orders ought to be followed. And you can, you can go Google this, you can get a sh- you know, short PDF version on it, but here's basically what this little pamphlet says. President McKinley during the Spanish-American War in Cuba, needed to get a message to a general named Garcia, but nobody knew where he was. He was hidden in the jungles of Cuba somewhere, but McKinley needed to get a message to him that would change the course of the Spanish-American War. So they found a first lieutenant, Andrew Rowan, and Andrew Rowan said, I'll take the message. And he takes the orders from President McKinley down through the chain of command and he goes over land and sea and jungle and mountain and he finds Garcia, hands him the letter and the course of the Spanish American War was changed. And the military passes this around to say, this is what we intend, how we intend our orders to be handled. When there's a need, when there's an order, you follow it without wavering, without equivocation. And I thought that's what Tychicus is like. Because you understand when Paul handed him these letters, it wasn't like, hey, go put these in the mailbox, make sure you lick them real good with a stamp so they get delivered. These were letters that were betraying Caesar. These were letters that were in a direct affront to the local government, 
the global government of the day. People were in jail and being stoned to death because of carrying around letters that talked about the things that Tychicus had to take. And Paul says, I need these letters taken to Colossae, to Laodicea, to Hierapolis. And he says, got it, I'm gone. I love Tychicus. He was a man of intense loyalty. In that letter to Garcia, the writer says this, McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and did not ask, where is he? By the eternal, there is a man whose form should be cast in deathless bronze and the statue placed in every college of the land. It is not book learning young men need nor instruction about this or that, but a stiffening of the vertebrae which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies and do the thing. Carry a message to Garcia. I think Tychicus was that kind of guy. I need you to get this message of the gospel to Laodicea. Colossae. So just a quick application. Is God telling you to do something that you know you should do without wavering? Do it by faith. Do it. Don't waver. All right. Second power player, Epaphras. Verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. I cannot wait to meet Epaphras in heaven one day. Because I believe so strongly in the Bible's teaching about be fruitful and multiply or spiritual multiplication, the making of disciples. Paul never visited Colossae, Laodicea, or Hierapolis. How did the gospel get there? Not by the ominous preaching of Paul the apostle, but by his beloved son in the faith, Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who took the gospel to Colossae. That's such an encouragement. None of us are omni anything. We can't be all places at all times. We can't be there in all things and all ways. The way Jesus intended this gospel to get to the church in Lexington in 2019 was one Epaphras telling another Epaphras over and over about the glories of Christ and the message of his gospel. The gospel made it to Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae because of Epaphras' faithfulness. Now, let me, let, me, let me drive this home. If I had a map up here, this, just pretend this is uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, the Mediterranean area. You got it in your head? Okay. Right over in this area here is this, these three cities that are in the, what's called the Lycus River Valley. You got Aeropolis to the north, Laodicea kind of in the central, and then Colossae kind of down here and the river runs down. Now, this is significant because in Revelation 3, Jesus Christ, in a rebuke to the church of Laodicea, he says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. Here's what that means. There were hot springs in Aeropolis. Aeropolis was a place of healing. They would go there and they had medicinal purposes. And as the river flowed down to Colossae, the waters were cool and there was lots of uh, agriculture happening in Colossae. Laodicea, the waters were lukewarm. And our Lord gave them a rebuke that they at one point were hot in Christ and now they were lukewarm because Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae were reached by Epaphras. You don't get a rebuke from the head of the church, Jesus Christ, unless there is a church present. And the church of Jesus Christ was alive and well at one point in Laodicea and Jesus rebukes them for being lukewarm. 
That's because Epaphras was faithful to his ministry. Third power player, Aristarchus, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Okay, don't, don't let that just flow over you, my fellow prisoner. <laughs> Remember the context. These guys are in jail waiting on Neronian execution. They didn't shoplift a Snickers at Target. They're in jail for rebellion, for being traitors. They're going to die. And Paul says that Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner. Now, we don't know if he was there because he was guilty of the same charge as Paul. Presumably he was. At least, at least he aligned himself with a prisoner of the gospel and he was there with him. Folks, this is so encouraging. Every one of us needs an, Artip- an Aristarchus in our life. Not just when you're in jail, when you're raising children, when you lose a loved one, when you get a cancer diagnosis, when you have something in your life, you need an Aristarchus right there going through it with you. And Paul had him in jail with him. He's a power player. All right, the last power player I want us to look at is in verse 15. Paul says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, the church in her house. Mac, you've been in seminary for three plus years. Have you had a class yet that taught about Nympha? Me neither. Get this. I love this. I'm raising three daughters. I want them to know about Nympha. I want them to know that in the midst of one of the most hostile times against the church ever, the Roman Empire, she had the the courage, the faith to host the church of Jesus Christ in her home. Nympha is a power player. She was used by God to host the church of Jesus Christ. She is a power player. Okay, now let's look secondly at the power enhancers. The reason I chose the word enhancers is there's always on a team and in a community, there are people that force out the weaknesses or the blind spots of that team or community. Or there are people who represent those issues where the gospel must be overlaid very applicably. This passage has got several of these power enhancers. And what I mean is they made the church stronger. They made the Christians stronger. They made the gospel more effective as it permeated cultures. Let me give you, let me give you three. The first one is in verse 10. Mark. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Okay, if this is the only passage about Mark you read, you're like, well, what's the deal? Mark seems like a great guy. He's there and he's getting a greeting and, he, and Paul wants the Colossians to welcome him. This is the great thing about scripture. Scripture interprets scripture and we can just, by a simple cross-reference, learn a whole bunch of power behind this man, Mark. In Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas are set out on their missionary journeys, they want to take John Mark with them, but he, he abandons them. He doesn't go. And then in Acts 15, when they want to go back and revisit the churches, Barnabas says, hey, let's take my cousin John Mark. And Paul says, I don't want him. He deserted us in Pamphylia. I don't want him. And in Acts 15, Luke says they had such a sharp disagreement. I don't know if they came to fisticuffs or not, but it was so strong, they parted ways. They had a split and two missionary agencies were formed, 
Paul and Silas, Barnabas and John Mark. But here, 24 years later, Paul says, Mark's coming to you, greet him, welcome him. Seven years after this, in 2 Timothy 4, he would say to Timothy, bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me. What happened? What happened? Well, number one, it's clear from scripture that difficulties and struggles within the body of Christ are okay. It happens. It's not okay to stay there. What happened to John Mark and to Paul was they were restored. They were reconciled. And I really believe what happened is the gospel, yes, was being proclaimed out there to all the nations, but it was first being proclaimed inside Paul and inside Mark that he knew I have been reconciled to Jesus Christ. Christ has forgiven me. I must be reconciled to my brother Mark. I must forgive. Mark, the same way. I abandoned the ministry in Pamphylia. I'm not going to abandon my Savior anymore. And in fact, John Mark is the, is the one who took the dictation of Jesus' life from the mouth of Peter. And we have a gospel called Mark. That's how restored he was to this ministry. So he's a power enhancer. I believe he was used by God to sanctify the church, to sanctify Paul. Second power enhancer, verse nine. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. Again, you look at this and say, I I don't don't get it, Onesimus. There's a book in your Bible called Philemon. The book of Philemon is a whole book, a whole letter written about this man, Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave. Philemon is a wealthy landowner. And Onesimus fled the oppression of Philemon and he met Paul in Rome and became a Christian. And no question what Paul helped him understand was how do I relate to my employer back in Colossae? So Paul writes a letter and sends it ahead and says, here's how I want you to treat Onesimus when he comes back. This is what the gospel means to divided relationships, employee, employer, dynamics. This is how the gospel ought to affect that. And in fact, Paul says to Philemon, whatever debt Onesimus owes you, charge to my account. He is a faithful and beloved brother. Welcome him home. I love this because what Onesimus represents within the community is when the gospel begins to go forward, it's not clean and nice. It gets into messy things. It gets into cultural preferences. It gets into all kinds of things that disrupt my normal comforts in life. And I'm forced to relate to people that are different from me. I'm forced to think about issues that I didn't think about before because Christ is invading every room of the house and he's cleaning the house so that it's more righteous and godly and holy. And that's uncomfortable at times. And so God gives every team, every community an Onesimus to force out those gospel issues. Brothers and sisters, you should welcome that. You should welcome those uh, invasive techniques of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a disruptive savior. He's gonna knock you off your self-righteousness. He's gonna knock you off your preferential treatment of others because he wants greater love and righteousness from us. All right, the third power enhancer, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke is described here as a beloved doctor. He's not a pastor. He's not a minister. He doesn't have a seminary education. He's a doctor. Now, I I, I bet if we polled 
most of you, you don't have a 24-7 live-in doctor with you. Why does Paul? Paul has not a doctor on call, one with him, traveling with him. Why? Well, scholars tell us Paul had eye issues. Paul had leg issues. There's no question. Luke tells us he was beaten three times to the near of death. So he had these gaping open wounds in his back. So he is so frail. He is so fragile. He has a live-in doctor with him. I think the significance of this is it pulls Paul out of the mystic floating on air kind of apostle to this real world, really frail, struggling human being that had physical issues like you and I will, maybe even to a greater degree, so much so that he was so weak he needed a doctor with him all the time. And Paul would later write, when I am weak, then I am strong. I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses for when I am weak, then I'm strong. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And I'll give you a doctor to go along with you. I love the fact that Luke's mentioned in all these as Paul's doctor. All right, so power players, power enhancers, power takers. This one's a warning, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Okay, so here, this letter was written in 60 AD. So Demas in 60 AD is greeting with Paul, the church at Laodicea. Seven years later, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul would write this. Timothy, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Seven years after he greets the church, he's deserted the church because he loved this present world. Demas is a power taker. He's a warning to all of us that worldliness, worldly thinking, worldly ambition, posturing, slandering, hard-heartedness, selfish ambition, on and on, love of money, love of the world, will cause you to desert your Savior and his people. The love of the world, the desires of the flesh, the things of the world are passing away. The things of the, of the Lord are not. This, the fact that Demas is here in Colossians 4 and is gone in 2 Timothy says to us, don't be a Demas. Do not love the world or the things of the world for the things of the world are passing away. Don't be a Demas. So what is God calling you today with these people? We're gonna finish the passage just a second, but quick application questions. What's he saying to you? Perhaps simply you need to get in the game. Maybe you're not on quote, the team. You're not, in the, you're not in the fellowship. Maybe you're here today trying to figure out what this is. Maybe you've been on this quest for a long time. You need to know that we're praying that you would get in the game, you'd get off the sidelines. Secondly, perhaps it's that God is saying something to you that you know you need to do, a relationship you need to heal, a conversation you need to have, resources you need to disperse without wavering, waiting, Maybe you should be like Tychicus and follow God without resolve, with, with, with resolve, sorry. Perhaps you're here and you don't know your role on the team. As Mac mentioned in our announcements, we've got a whole list of ways that you can be involved. But I think this screams, Paul couldn't do this alone. He didn't do it alone. He had people all over that were taking their gifts and their talents and opening their homes and using their talents and their professions so that Christ was named in the world. Or perhaps he's warning you to flee harmful attitudes and behaviors that that might desert the Lord. 
the Holy Spirit give you wisdom on that. All right, let's finish the passage. Verse 18, the last verse. It says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. All right, take, let your mind go there. Remember I said he's in prison. Antichicus is dictating. And at this moment, as the letters come into a close, Paul says, let me have the pen. Let me have it. I want to write myself. Now this, all scholars say, this was Paul's authenticating autograph. They could recognize his letters because he would do this. But it also means that whatever he is getting ready to say next, we ought to really listen to. To the point he says, I want the pen. I want to close the letter. And he gives us two sentences. Remember my chains and grace be with you. What did he mean by remember the chain? Remember my chains. Well, this, this phrase, remember, whatever, is, is in a lot of Paul's letters. And it's usually closely aligned with prayer. He would say, remember to pray for me. Remember to pray that a door would be open. Remember to pray that we would be strengthened. For sure, I think he's asking for that. But he doesn't say, remember to pray. He says, remember my chains. And Paul was very much, Colossians has this theme running through it. That he understood that the gospel of Jesus Christ made it to the world because of a suffering savior. Christ was crucified. The gospel didn't come with nice parades of circumstance and and glory. It came through a carpenter from Nazareth who rode in town onto a donkey and was crucified a criminal's death and laid in a tomb and then rose again the third day. This gospel came through suffering. And Paul would say, I'm still suffering. I've got the wounds on my body and on my back. Remember my chains. This gospel will go forward with struggle. It will be messy. Do not forget my chains. Do not forget the sacrifice of God's people, but ultimately of God's son. Do not forget my chains. But it doesn't stop there. He says, grace be with you. Not only did this gospel go forward with suffering, but it's grace that it goes forward at all. Who we are in Christ, we're people of grace. Thankful, humble, patient, full of faith, kind. Peter O'Brien said, God's grace will sustain the community for it is by grace alone that we will stand. My chains are gone. My heart is free. Amazing grace. I'm set free. That's what the brother's saying. Why? Because the gospel will go forward amidst trial and tribulation, struggle. But grace be with you. So that's how Paul ends his letter. And that's an appropriate way for us to come to the table and end this sermon. Because you know what Jesus said? I mean, it's written on the front of our table. Remember me. This do in remembrance of me. What are we, what are we remembering here? We're remembering the suffering of Christ. But we're also remembering this is grace poured out to you in abundance. It never dries up. This is eternal grace for you. This grace is sufficient for you if you're in jail for the gospel, if you're battling cancer, if you're raising children, if you lose a loved one, if you're struggling with your job, if you're struggling with your finances, if you're struggling with sin issues, this table is grace for you. 
And we see a whole list of people here who are $3 people who have a priceless Savior because of grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's come to the table. Lord, thank you for these men and women who are 2,000 years later speaking volumes to us. I pray now as we come to your table that you would encourage our heart. You would indeed set us free. Lord, I pray that your people would know your grace this morning. Help us to remember that this gospel has gone forward through suffering, but we have a Savior who can meet us in our suffering. Lord, give us grace now at this table. In Christ's name we pray, amen.